to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, Episode 9. Today I'm going to talk about concussions. This was mentioned on a few prior episodes. One for the Love of the Game, Episode 3, the movie, as well as the diagnosis or condition. It was mentioned as one of my favorite football movies as art imitates life. As you know from episode three, I am a diehard football fan. When I first learned about the movie Concussion, I was so intrigued. Anything that involves football catches my attention. I love it. It is my favorite spectator sport. I had to see the movie opening day. November 10th, 2015. I sat actually awaiting for the story to unfold. I knew, of course, it was a movie about concussions, football, and Dr. Omalu, the physician scientist who was played by Will Smith. That was my knowledge of the movie prior to seeing it. After the podcast, I had to watch the movie again. I also rewatched Jerry Maguire. I will begin by talking about the movie and then I will go into a more detailed discussion about concussions. As the movie began, Mike Wallace is giving his pro football Hall of Fame speech. I thought back to when I went to the pro football Hall of Fame after running the Hall of Fame half marathon. Now, when I think about the movie and that speech, I think about the time I went to the Hall of Fame enshrinement ceremony. As I watched the movie, then, eh, now, more recently, I got giddy like a kid listening to his speech. The reason I love football so much is that I equate it with life, the passion, the hard work, And the nostalgia of the game is what fascinates me. I did not know who Mike Webster was. So at the time, I had to do some research on my own. I also researched other players and scientists in the film. Football history intrigues me. Which is why I watch NFL football life. Mike Webster, also known as Iron Mike, was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1997. He was drafted in 1974. I was one at the time. He was a center. Webster began a string of 150 consecutive starts that lasted until 1986, when he missed the first four games with a dislocated elbow. He played more seasons, 15, and more games, 220, than any other player in Pittsburgh history. Webster, who was the team's 
offensive captain for nine seasons, was considered to be the strongest stealer. He snapped a ball to Terry Bradshaw. The movie goes from a scene to one of the greatest moments of Mike Webster's football career to a scene where he is homeless. He is not only homeless, he is living in his truck. One of his former teammates, who was an offensive lineman, Justin Strazacek, comes to see him in his truck. Justin tells him that he understands that he's having similar symptoms, that he gets mad and he's scared he's going to hurt his wife. Mike Webster later died of a heart attack at the age of only 50 in 2002. Prior to his death, he goes to see Dr. Julian Bells. He is desperate. He asks for help. He does not understand what is going on in his mind. He feels like he is losing his mind. His doctor gives him some medication to calm him down. Dr. Julian Bells, who is a neurosurgeon, who was also a former doctor for the Pittsburgh Steelers, is in awe. Because prior to this incident, after a battery of tests, everything was negative. Dr. Bells could not understand. Dr. Omalo happens to be the coroner on call when Mike Webster died. Dr. Omalo found a joy to his job. He was meticulous in his autopsies. He often spoke to his deceased patients. Each person he believed had a story that needed to be told. He loved the science. He sought to get the answers literally at no cost. He knew despite all the negative tests, a normal brain on appearance, that there was more to the story. He sent off a battery of tests that he actually paid for himself. Another pathologist who worked in his lab often told him to hurry up. He told him not to do an autopsy on the legendary Mike Webster. Dr. Omalu had to know the answers to why this man was dead at such an early age. Through his intense research and analysis, he discovered he had a brain condition caused by repeated trauma to his brain. The trauma caused plaques to form that basically choked the healthy brain tissue. This would cause headaches, forgetfulness, fits of rage, confusion, depression, Alzheimer's-like symptoms. He presented his work to Dr. Stephen Dukoski, a prominent neurologist at the University of Pittsburgh. After reviewing the information, Dr. Omalu told Dr. Dukoski that the tissue was from Mike Webster's brain. Through Dr. Omalu's research, he came across a condition called dementia plagalistica, punch drunk, which was initially found in those with a history of boxing. He named the condition that he found in football players CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It had the appearance of dementia plagalistica. In 2005, Dr. Omalu, along with colleagues in the Department of Pathology at the University of Pittsburgh, published his findings in the Journal of Neurosurgery. It was a paper which he titled Chronic Traumatic Encephalopathy in a National Football League Player. This was followed by a paper on a second case in 2006 with similar pathology. Dr. Umalu was happy 
He had answered a question. He had solved a problem. He assumed that the NFL would appreciate his information. He assumed that this information could be used to help the game become more safe. To prevent or to warn players so that there would be no more Mike Webster's. Unfortunately, it was quite the contrary. The NFL had done studies on their own and concluded that the game was safe, that concussions did not cause long-term problems. Dr. Amalu's work was a contradiction to this, and the NFL did not like it. Dr. Julian Bells, who no longer worked with the NFL, was good friends with Mike Webster. He reached out to Dr. Amalu. They talked, and Dr. Bells believed Dr. Amalu's work. The battle began. Dr. Bell's goal was to help Dr. Omalu. The NFL would not be receptive to listening to a physician who is not even from America. One that claimed his favorite sport causes damage that could ultimately lead to death. Terry Long, another NFL football player, former Pittsburgh Steeler, offensive lineman, committed suicide by drinking antifreeze in 2005. He had previously attempted suicide in 1991. Dr. Omalo did his autopsy and discovered that he also had CTE. Another NFL football player, Andre Waters, committed suicide with gunshot to his head in 2006. Andre Waters was regarded as one of the NFL's hardest-hitting defenders. He was a safety. His tackle of Los Angeles Rams quarterback Jim Everett in 1998 led to a rule prohibiting defensive players from hitting quarterbacks below the waist when they still were in the pocket. For a while, it was unofficially termed the Andre Waters rule. His brain tissue was sent to Dr. Omalo, and he was found to have CTE as well. He had the brain of an 85-year-old. Justin Strauzachak, Mike Webster's friend, who visited him while he was living in his truck, the one who told him he had similar problems. He died in a car crash when he hit a tank truck by driving 90 miles per hour against the flow of traffic to evade capture by the police in 2004. He was 36 years old. Dr. Amalo studied his brain after his death, and he was found to have CTE in 2007. Dr. Bells sets up a meeting with Dr. Joseph Maroon, a neurosurgeon at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and one of the team doctors for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Dr. Amalo discovered during his review of the medical records of the Steelers players that had CTE, that Dr. Maroon's name was noted. Dr. Amalu and Dr. Maroon have a heated discussion. He tells him of his findings, which Dr. Maroon had publicly refuted. Dr. Amalu does not back down. He repeatedly states to Dr. Maroon, tell the truth, tell the truth. Dr. Maroon understood that NFL football was a business. The goal was to return the player to the field by any means necessary. Football was, and it still is, a business. 
He challenged Dr. Amalu because he was not American and knew nothing about how great and almighty football was. And it still is today. Dr. Amalu's boss, Dr. Cyril Wick, told him that he was taking on the NFL and to beware that NFL on Sunday, the day that used to be owned by God and the church. I thought that was a powerful statement. The commissioner at the time of Mike Webster's death was Paul Taglebu, but Roger Goodell took over in 2006. Roger Goodell made a public relations move and claimed to be open to hearing Dr. Amalu's research. Right before the meeting, Dr. Amalu was not allowed to speak. They did allow Dr. Bells to speak, one of their own. It was a public relations move. They were not ready to listen. The NFL just wanted to state that they had listened. Dr. Omalu anxiously waited in the hallway. After the meeting, Dave Durison walks out of the meeting and confronts Dr. Omalu. He tells him to go back to Africa. Durison was a safety in the NFL who played for the Chicago Bears, the New York Giants, and the Phoenix Cardinals. He earned significant honors during his career, including selection to four consecutive Pro Bowls for the NFL. Ironically, Durison, while adamantly against Dr. Umalu's research, ended up committing suicide via a gunshot wound to his chest. He left a suicide note that he wanted his brain to be studied for CTE. After his death, the NFL was forced to listen. They did listen. Further information on the NFL and CTE. In 2012, Kansas City Chief linebacker Jovan Belcher killed his girlfriend and drove to the stadium and killed himself in front of the general manager and his head coach. It was confirmed that he suffered from CTE in 2014. As of December 2012, 33 former NFL players have been diagnosed post-mortem with CTE. An autopsy conducted in 2010 on the brain of Owen Thomas, a 21-year-old junior lineman at the University of Pennsylvania who committed suicide, showed early signs of CTE, making him the second youngest person to be diagnosed with the condition. In October 2010, 17-year-old Nathan Stills died hours after his high school homecoming football game. Where he took a hit, that would be the final straw in a series of concussive blows to the head for the high schooler, making him the youngest reported CTE case to date. In 2012, retired NFL player Junior Sales committed suicide with a gunshot wound to the chest. In 2013, the brain pathology reported and revealed sales had evidence of CTE. The NFL has taken measures to prevent concussions. As of July 2011, the NFL has changed its return to play rules. The number of contact practices has also been reduced based on the recent collective bargaining agreement. Today, players get fined for helmet-to-helmet intentional and unintentional hits. 
In 2012, some 4,000 former NFL players joined civil lawsuits against the NFL seeking damages over the league's failure to protect players from concussions. On April 22, 2015, a final settlement was reached between players and the NFL in the case. But the NFL never admitted to having prior knowledge on the dangers of concussions. Terms included payments to be made by the NFL for $75 million for baseline medical examinations for retired players, $10 million for research and education, as well as uncapped amounts for retirees who could demonstrate that they suffer from one of the severe brain conditions covered by the agreement, with total payments expected to exceed $1 billion over 65 years. Bernard Kozar, who sustained several concussions during his 12-year NFL career, has shown symptoms of CTE and submitted himself to an experimental treatment program led by Dr. Rick Sanago of Florida. He states that the treatment has alleviated many of his symptoms. The program includes increasing blood flow to damaged portions of the brain. He has spoken out in public about his success with the treatment in the hopes that others who suffer from disease can find relief and avoid the fates of Duracin and Sales. Both were personal friends of Kozar's. The efficacy of Dr. Rick Sanago's work has not been validated through any published clinical trials or other validated scientific process, nor has this treatment been supported by any reputable medical group conducting research into CTE. I looked up some more research to see if there had been any updates to his studies since I had saw the movie. I did some recent research to see if there were any updates in his work and I did not find any. I love the movie, but it was concerning. It was if the scientist in me was in stark contrast to the football fanatic in me. I fell in love with football when I was completing a sports medicine fellowship in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Part of my training was covering football games. Stood on the sideline and looked out for injuries. I had to pay attention to make sure I monitored all the players. Also, if I didn't pay attention, I would risk being injured myself. Remember Sean Payton, the head coach of the New Orleans Saints, injury on the sideline. He sustained an injury to his leg. As I watched every snap, run, touchdown, I learned a game. I used to ask the athletic trainer questions when I was unsure of what was going on. At that time, I only knew the basics. He schooled me in football. I fell in love with the game, and it only grows more and more. One of the scenes in the movie that I vividly remember was when Dr. Bells was talking to Dr. Malu about speaking with the NFL. He talked about his passion for the game spark in his eyes as he talked about the love of the game. I can relate. It literally hurt him. The fact that a game he loved so much could be potentially dangerous. 
that the multiple hits could cause damage that could potentially result in death. I feel the same way. While I see the science, I love the game. I think there needs to be more research into making the game safer. But at this time, I would not stop watching football. If I had a son, I would want him to play football. I would let him if he desired to. Now, let me go more into the subject of concussions. A concussion, as mentioned above, is a type of traumatic brain injury caused by a bump, a blow, a jolt to the head, or by a hit to the body that can cause the head and the brain to move quickly back and forth. This sudden movement can cause the brain to bounce around or twist in the skull, causing chemical changes in the brain and sometimes stretching and damaging brain cells. A concussion can have serious effects, as we know, particularly on the young developing brain. Not giving the brain enough time to heal after the concussion can be dangerous. Repeated concussions that occur before the brain fully heals from the first within a short amount of time can slow recovery or increase the chances of long-term health problems. This can cause changes in how an athlete thinks, acts, as well as their ability to learn and remember. While rare, a repeat concussion can result in brain swelling, permanent brain damage. It can even be fatal. There have been several policy changes in professional as well as in non-professional athletes. On a local level, many state schools and sports leagues have created policies or action plans on concussions in youth and high school sports. Beginning in 2009, the state of Washington passed the first concussion sports law called the Zachary Licit Law. One month later, Max Law passed in Oregon. To date, there are more than 43 states, including the District of Columbia, that have passed laws on concussions. Sports for youth and high school players called the return to play laws. Most state laws involve three action steps. Educate, inform coaches, athletes, parents, or guardians about concussions. Do training and information. The information includes concussion signs and symptoms, as well as what to do if a concussion occurs. An athlete who is believed to have a concussion is to be removed from play right away. An athlete can only return to play or practice after at least 24 hours with permission from a healthcare professional. Many schools have developed a concussion management team to check on students with a concussion for any changes in behavior or increased problems with schoolwork following a concussion. With a plan that involves special support or help for students during the school day if they need help with recovery. Also, the plan must include an emergency medical action plan. 
These plans often include contact information for local emergency and medical responders and the location of trauma centers. Rules have also been put into place to ensure safer play by limited contact during sports practices, putting in place rule changes and or banning or limiting the use of certain drills or techniques to help reduce the chances of injury. Checking sports equipment often. This includes making sure the equipment fits the athletes well, make sure it is in good condition, stored properly and repaired in place based on instructions from the equipment companies. The CDC has a heads up program that provides educational material available at no cost that can help state and local organizations meet many of the requirements in regards to concussion sports policies. The material includes online courses for youth, coaches, parents. This was developed in partnership with the National Federation of State High School Associations. Also with the help of healthcare professionals with support from the NFL. While these policies that have been put in place are for the protection of athletes, there needs to be a more concerted effort to see if these policies are actually effective in preventing the number of concussions. So there needs to be a coordinated collecting of data from the schools from all over the country during the season. And there needs to be a change if it is shown that these policies are not effective in reducing the numbers of concussions. In regard to the NFL, when a player receives an impact to the head, the player goes into the concussion protocol. If the player exhibits or reports symptoms or signs suggested of a concussion or a stinger, and a stinger is considered like a pinched nerve, you may get pain and numbness and tingling down your arm, but it goes away. So if the player exhibits signs of concussion or a stinger, that's the first. If the team athletic trainer, and there also is an athletic trainer in the booth, team physician, NFL game official, coach, teammate, they have sideline unaffiliated neurotrauma consultants, also called UNC. They have booth UNCs and other UNCs. If any of these people spot a player with signs and symptoms of a concussion or after a significant hit, or if the player has a loss of consciousness, then the player must be immediately removed to the sideline or stabilized on the field to undergo the concussion assessment. The concussion assessment includes a sideline survey 
remove the helmet, the team physician, and the sideline UNC perform this survey in the medical tent. If the sideline survey is normal, the player can return back to play. If there is loss of consciousness, including seizure, gross motor instability, confusion, forgetfulness, the player is out for the rest of the game. Also, the video is reviewed, a focused neurological exam is performed, a cervical spine examination, evaluation of speech, you observe the way the player walks. You also observe eye, and they get a pupil examination. And they're also asked what's called Maddox questions. Maddox questions include, at what venue are we today? Which half is it? Who scored last? What did you play last week? Did your team win the last game? These questions are from the SCAT 3. And briefly, the SCAT, C-T-A-T, is a sports concussion assessment tool. The 3 just means that it's the third version. It's designed by health professionals it is standardized assessment of sports concussions in athletes age 10 and older. And they also have one based on younger athletes. Often players, as part of their preseason assessment, do the assessment so that there will be a baseline to compare if the athlete is injured. During this Sideline survey. If any of the elements are positive, inconclusive, or suspicious of a concussion, player is escorted to the locker room. The locker room examination is performed by the team physician, UNC, and or athletic trainer. The exam includes a complete NFL SCAP which I mentioned earlier, complete neurological examination. If it's normal, the player can return to play. If anything is abnormal, the player cannot return to play. The player stays in the locker room. He gets a periodic assessment by the medical team while in a follow-up neurological examination. All players who undergo any concussion evaluation on game day have to have a follow-up evaluation conducted the following day by a member of the medical staff. Return to play protocols. Every NFL player diagnosed with a concussion must follow a five-step process before being cleared to fully practice or participate in an NFL game. Each player and each concussion is unique, so there's no set time frame for return to play. After a player has progressed through the five-stage process, and is cleared for full participation to his team. 
He must be seen and separately cleared by independent neurological consultant, INC, jointly approved by the NFL and the NFL Players Association, who is not affiliated with any NFL team. Until cleared by this NFL physician, a player may not return to contact practice or play in an NFL game. The five phases of return to participation protocol. Phase one includes symptom-limited activity. The player is prescribed rest, limiting, or if necessary, avoiding activities, both physical and cognitive, that increase or aggravate symptoms. Under the athletic training staff supervision, limited stretching and or balance training can be introduced, progressing to light aerobic activities as tolerated. In phase two, this again is under the direct oversight of the team medical staff. The player can begin gradual cardiovascular exercise and may engage in dynamic stretching and balancing activities. Neurocognitive and balancing testing can be administrated after the completion of phase two, and the results should be interpreted as back to baseline for continued progression. Phase three, football-specific activities. The player continues with supervised cardiovascular exercises that are increased and may mimic sport-specific activities, and supervised strength training is introduced the player is allowed to practice with the team in sport-specific exercises for 30 minutes or less with ongoing and careful monitoring. Phase four includes team-based non-contact training drills. The player continues cardiovascular strength and balance training, team-based sport-specific exercise, and participation in non-contact football activities such as throwing, catching, running, or other position-specific activities. Neurocognitive and balancing tested should be completed no later than the end of phase four, again with the results interpreted as back to baseline. Phase five is full football activity clearance. Upon clearance by the club physician for full football activities, including contact, the player must be examined by the independent neurological consultant that is assigned to his football team. If the independent neurological consultant concurs with the team physician that the player's concussion has resolved, he may participate in team practice or a game. There was a study in 2019, the effects of concussion in professional sports with a focus on the National Football League and meta-analysis. The study reviewed what concussions were, how they affected the brain, and how professional sports, specifically the NFL, put athletes at risk of obtaining traumatic brain injuries. The purpose was to find the reason behind why concussions were more prevalent in the NFL and the different ways a concussion can happen during different plays to specific positions were examined. A meta-analysis is a type of research paper that uses data from multiple research papers to determine similarities. 
their primary question was, again, what is the effect of concussions on National Football League players? The research consisted of looking for NFL concussion articles along with CTE experiments and NFL concussion policies. 509 papers were found that met the initial criteria. From those 509 papers, the articles were narrowed down based on their content and their reliability. There were only 19 papers left to investigate in the meta-analysis after final review. Of those 19 papers that aligned with the research question, five were scientific research papers that contained information based on similar populations. The project was split up into separate studies. One was a meta-analysis to see if concussions cause depression in the future. The other was to see if concussions cause a decrease in cognitive ability in the future. Again, there were five research articles used to determine if there was a significant rate of depression in NFL players after retiring. There were four research articles that compared the decrease of cognitive ability and concussions. All of the research indicated that concussions do, in fact, lean toward a decrease in cognitive ability. Dr. Omalu was the founder of CTE, as discussed previously, a disease that is caused by constant head trauma. Patients who are found to have CTE experience, again, mood changes like depression and cognitive dysfunction. Through their meta-analysis, they found that there was significant information linking concussions with depression and cognitive dysfunction. The fact that there are multitudes of retired NFL players that are depressed and have a decrease in their cognitive ability. There could be multitudes of athletes with CTE. Currently, CTE can only be found on postmortem autopsy. There is no way of telling if players with these symptoms have CTE. This article came to the conclusion that instead of the NFL putting money toward just preventing and treating concussions in current players, that the NFL needs to put money toward CTE research to help their retired athletes get the help before they fall victim to CTE. Because currently, again, the only way to diagnose CTE is postmortem. From this article, they recommended that the NFL put funds into coming up with a way to test and treat to discover CTE and living players. I would definitely agree with their conclusion. The NFL is a powerful organization with a significant amount of money. We do not know the long-term effect of concussions. While efforts have been made to decrease concussions, there is a specific protocol. As mentioned earlier, Patients are suspected of having concussion. The goal is to prevent the long-term effect of concussions. 
But I think that the NFL owes it to their retired players and to their current players because, again, CTE is only diagnosed post-mortem. Research needs to be done to come up with a diagnostic test that can be performed in living people. For this to be most effective, it needs to be able to be performed and be accurate in current players to tell which players are at risk of developing CTE later in life. There also needs to be research into treating CTE, such as Dr. Rick Sonago's research. Research that will lead to treatment and hopefully a cure. up this episode of running is cheaper than therapy podcast thank you for tuning in please if you already haven't download running is cheaper than therapy podcast on itunes spotify or however you listen to your favorite podcasts if you have any questions comments or possible show topics please email running is cheaper than therapy olb omahalovebrown at gmail.com Again, that is running is cheaper than therapy O as in Omaha L as in love B as in brown at gmail.com Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter Facebook, Instagram and YouTube Handle we O-U-I life L-I-V-E We O-U-I love L-O-V-E Again, we OUI life L I V E. We OUI love. Thank you and please tune in again.